Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. Get ready. So excited for you to hear this next conversation. Wait for it. Today, we talk with American author and cartoonist Jeff Kinney. Jeff is the author and creator of the popular series, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. He shares his story of how he became inspired to write this series that is based on the awkward phase people go through in middle school because everyone has that phase. <laughs> he talks about how he wanted to be a cartoonist after college, but was unable to break through into the industry, even after working hard on his craft and technique. He opens up about the self-doubt he faced on the series before it took off. He has sold over 245 million copies worldwide. Several books were made into movies. There was a musical, oh, and a video game. Uh, throughout our conversation, he offers advice on how to get good at something by making sure you're setting realistic goals and making sure you do something every day to achieve them. We le also learn about where he does most of his writing. Trust me, you won't guess it. Enjoy this episode. So, like I said, so appreciative. And I think for, like, for me personally, just out of the gate, I'll tell you, I have three boys, none of whom are voracious readers, but, but in particular, my middle son, Scott, and my youngest son, Josh, love your books so much and, oh, and, God. and really the only thing they'll read, <laughs> so, um, like the only thing they'll read. And so when I told them I was I was speaking with you today, one, you gave me like major credit, like street credit, which I never get for my kids with anybody I interview. They, they're like, whatever. Uh, when I mentioned you, they were like, you know, gobsmacked. And then my youngest wanted me to let you know that right now, like in present time, he is reading Wrecking Ball. Again, I probably again. So I don't even know if my kids have read that, so. <laughs> So I'm just, I'm like fangirling for a minute just because I, you've had such an impact on, on my boys. And I think, you know, one of the things I want to talk to you about, and maybe we'll kind of start here is just, you know, I don't know what you know in terms of the data, right, of your readers. Uh, I'm sure you, you've done some, yeah. some research yeah. with that. But, you know, I think that particularly, you know, a lot of young boys seem to really resonate in, in your yeah. writing you know, makes such an impact. And so I'm curious for you, like what prompted your in interest to write about that period of time in someone's life? Oh, that's a great question. I just wanted to write about middle school because I thought middle school was a time when you're sort of at the edge of adolescence. You're, you're sort of, it's very pre-adult, but it's also the last time that you're kind of holding on to those wisps of childhood. And so I think that, and also it's a time when, you know, some kids are literally half the size of the others because people are at different stages of development. So it's a time that most adults wouldn't want to revisit. Um, so I thought it was a great place for comedy, fertile ground. <laughs> I think that's so true. And I um, often talk to people and I interview people about their path and how they, you know, got where they are and, and all that good stuff. When we talk about middle school, there's like invariably people are like, huh, like it, it's such a visceral response. Yeah. And I don't know a lot of people that had 
a great experience in middle school. I it's, Weirdly, I actually had a pretty good experience, but I went to a small school. There was like 36 kids. It wasn't like your traditional, I think, yeah. public, you know, where you're kind of experiencing a lot of what you write about, for sure. Yeah, my middle school experience, we, for us, it was junior high. I, yeah. I grew up in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, junior high, it, you kind of almost felt like you were being sequestered in a way because it was like, oh, there's this, you know, this six or seven year experience in elementary school. And then there's this two year sliver. And then there's a four year experience. It's like, why is there a two year sliver? And I, you know, I, I think I kind of got the sense that they were sort of uh, pushing us off to the side as we went through this awkward, uh, you know, larval stage of development. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's also talk, if you would, and this was so because I I mentioned my boys, I asked them both what I should ask you. So I have to be true to that. And um, one of them wanted me to ask you about how you create. And so I thought I could ask that in addition to telling us about a day in the life. So maybe start with how do you, how did you create all of this, right? In terms of the the characters and the framework and and where did like that come from was it like a dream or is that something that right how did that build over time and then maybe you could talk a little bit at this point what a day in the life is like for you right now well i'll start with a day in the life okay Um, every day is really wild like as soon as we're uh done here today i've got them you know i get hop on the phone with uh with disney and i meet with the director and the producers and we talk about um you know notes on the first reel of the next wimpy kid movie and then later on tonight we go through a casting meeting you know it's all done by zoom and then my day is filled with today like trying to find a band to travel with us on our tour we're gonna i have a band named loaded diaper in my books and (laughs) And um, we're going to find like some you know college kids to come out with us and um, and be a band. Uh, and so it's like, but every day is really has its own flavor. Um, a month ago, if you know, when when we were sort of setting this up, and I was very unavailable, I was at my desk six, sixteen hours a day drawing. You know, and and I I don't have any. There's no fluff time. There's no extra time. So it, it really varies. But my my years and days are are very uh wild and then of course i've forgotten your your first yeah no, it's okay you're not i know i like wrote the cardinal yeah. rule you're not supposed to stack questions so <laughs> i think the question about how did you create or how do you create you know I, or or how did you create this landscape of these characters and how long yeah. did that take you yeah well i i wanted to create sort of like a funhouse mirror version of my own family so the characters are uh you know they're versions of my family members including me you know greg is is like a version of me yeah and so i wanted to kind of capture our family stories and my personal stories all in one place like take everything that was funny and put it all in one place and and that's what i did with with Wimpy kid and then as far as my day-to-day creation goes these days i i can't draw from my memories anymore so i use these different techniques to kind of generate memories and that's uh that's that's how i do it now yeah so how deep how many books i should know this maybe how many books in are you i i know there's just over like 275 million sold or something incredible like that but how many books do you have at this point yeah so uh i i have uh, my 18th wimpy kid mainline series is coming out in a few days is it no it's 17. (laughs) i'm starting to think about 18 now which is why that's in my head but um 
Yeah, so 17 plus about four uh, or five spinoff books uh, so far. So about 20, 22 by now. Well, congratulations. Like that's, and, and I was looking too at everything this this world now has morphed into, you mentioned movies at, at the top of the interview, the video game, and then the, the series. Like how how does it feel to have such an impact like and a global impact and global reach like how does that yeah it feels really surreal um to last night i think um what's odd is that i write these books here in plainville massachusetts i do a lot of my writing at the cemetery and my my writing feels like really small at the you know i've have lots of doubt about whether anybody will find it funny and then immediately you know two months later it's the books are the stories are all over the world um so last night um one of our neighbors who's romanian had a kid over who who came from romania a 16 year old and he came over and just wanted to tell me how, how much he's enjoyed my books that was really cool and then i just had somebody in the studio from taiwan who uh the books are reaching their readers as well it's uh it's an incredible honor to write something to have thoughts in my head that go onto you know onto a computer and then get out to the whole world so i feel um it doesn't feel real to me but it it feels really wonderful how long have you wanted to be a writer I wanted to be a cartoonist, a newspaper cartoonist um, for a long time, since at least high school, college. And that didn't work out for me. I wasn't able to break in. So I had to develop this other kind of technique or format that took me a long time to develop, about eight or nine years. So I would say during that time was the time that I really wanted to be an actual writer. Did you find, that was the other question that my other son wanted me to ask you, just about difficulties and failure I, I i don't you know that that question of like tell me about a time you failed it's not that sure. not maybe that on the nose but i think maybe situations or there have there been points in which you weren't successful or that you felt like you couldn't pursue this to your point around you had an idea of what you wanted to do and then that didn't necessarily work out well, I, I did try to become a newspaper cartoonist for three years. And so those years were full of uh, rejections and lots of submissions and then, you know, rejections that weren't encouraging or illuminating at all. And so with my uh, writing, once I came out with Diary of a Wimpy Kid, I fully expected to get rejected. And um, aside from a weird kind of preemptive rejection letter I got from a publishing house that I hadn't submitted to, I I was able to find somebody right away. and you know, find the right publisher for me. Uh, so I didn't actually face a, a, a lot of rejection with Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but, you know, with, with my newspaper cartooning, I did. Do you write first and then draw or draw and then write? Like if, in terms of your, or is it simultaneously? How does that work? I come up with the jokes first and that takes a few months. And then once I'm done, when I, when I write the jokes, I have images in my head. Um, so I feel like the drawings are already done in a way. And then I do the, um, the writing, which takes, uh, you know, the actual copy it takes about a month uh, for the manuscript. And then it takes me about two, two and a half months to do all of the illustrations at the end. So drawing is what comes last. Do you do everything yourself or do you have help, right? In terms of, do you have someone that edits it or do you have someone that kind of checking it to is it really funny <laughs> you know yeah. or is it just right. all you still as this thing is evolving yeah. over time? 
Yeah, I definitely have an editor and we have a managing editor and an, another copy editor. So they really help me to make sure there aren't any mistakes. Um, yeah. And then um, I don't often vet it for, for comedy. You know, by now I can kind of trust in the comedy. Yeah. I would say in the old days I would have shared it with uh, more people. But now I, I kind of know what works and what doesn't work. Um, so that's, uh, I would say that that's on me these days. What do you think? Because I can't be the first person that's told you that for me and, and having young boys and having boys that react so well to it, and I'm sure there's lots of girls that do as well. What do you think it is about the way your stories are told or the way the books work that connects so much with them? What do you think that like you can turn non-readers into readers? Mm, I think that there are a few things. Yeah. Um, one is uh, that there are drawings throughout the books. So if these books were straight text, that they wouldn't have done as well, for sure. Um, so I think that it's hitting kids at the right time when, you know, the kids go from from chapter books to or picture books to chapter books. And there's there's not a lot in between. So these books are kind of in between. They keep that fire uh, going from from that picture book phase. Um, so I think there's that. I think that the books are funny and that that goes a long way towards their success. And then the books are relatable. I think kids can see themselves in the characters. You know, the fact that kids in Romania and in China seem to like the books equally um, suggests to me that I'm writing about something that feels universally true. And, you know, all I'm really writing about is the, the ins and outs of childhood. And do you feel like, I mean, 18 books later, how do you still come up with stuff? <laughs> like, do you have writer's block? Are you ever worried that you can't still create? Or, or is that just a, like, like, how do you keep that fresh, I guess? I do. I, you know, I always have writer's block. I, I would say I'm unlike most other creators. I think for, for a lot of uh, my peers, uh, content just flows. And that's not the case with me. Um, but I have a technique I use that was taught by, that was invented by um, an Israeli team uh, of authors that's called systematic inventive thinking, which actually helps you to generate ideas and concepts very quickly and very authentically mm -hmm. and so now i know that with that tool set i'm not worried you know i'm not writer's block isn't an issue because i can i can systematically uh, be creative that's awesome how often do you write one a year or two a year or you just mentioned you know several projects at one time so is it not even that cadence right is it you have several projects so how do you have a goal of how many you want to complete each year? How does that work in terms yeah, of Yeah, for the past, um, during the pandemic, I actually wrote two books here, which was rare for me. That's not that's not my habit. And right now I'm back down to one. And then we're, we're working on a few uh, films simultaneously. So e each one of my days is like we're jumping around. You know, I, you know, just this summer I was working on one um you know one book and then three movies at the same time it is kind of hard to hold all that in my head at the same time because Gosh. all you know, four things are in really different stages of develop development um but it's of course it's a it's a feast and it's um you know i'm, I'm not going to cry about having a lot of opportunities because it's it's rare could you have ever imagined or did you imagine that this is where all of this could go in terms of the movies and a musical and 
you know, all these different aspects of this world. Could you have ever predicted that? I think in a rock star sort of way, like when you, yeah. anybody that picks up an electric guitar thinks, yeah. oh, hey, I'll play Wembley Stadium or, or whatever. Um, so in that way, in that kind of pretend fantasy sort of way, yeah, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to, you know, I, I you know, I envisioned it as a newspaper cartoonist where people would read my comic every morning before work. And yeah. of course that world has changed a lot. Um, but I, and I thought that that was a semi-realistic dream because I, I felt like in college I was a good writer. I wasn't such a good artist, but I, I knew I could write gags. Mm. And then, uh, but as far as all this about, you know, like, you know, the touring and touring around the world and, you know, I've met, I guess, like five U.S. presidents or something like that. It's all, I couldn't have imagined that, you know, and, and so it gets wilder and wilder and, and, and sometimes the, the, uh, the opportunities come to me and then yeah. sometimes I invent the opportunity opportunities so it's uh it's a real mix but i like to kind of keep this whole thing churning because you never know when it's going to end yeah for sure what would you say for people that are listening and i think you it's interesting like you're a writer maybe at first right but now you're a creator in a lot of other different ways so what what has helped you to be successful let's start there what what do you think are some of the habits or rituals that, that you employ that you think have helped you to to be as successful as long as you've been able to keep this up relatable is sponsored by tfa soft skills your one-stop shop for workshops coaching speaking and soft skills development if you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information Um, well, there's this book called Outliers by yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. which a lot of people refer to. And they talk about the 10,000 hour rule about becoming an expert at something by working for a long time. And I would definitely say that that is the first thing is that I didn't just kind of spit out the first thing I thought of. I worked on it for a long time behind the curtain uh, before I showed it to anyone. Mm. Um, I saw this billboard in around Boston. I don't know why somebody paid to put this up on a billboard but it had the quote from benjamin franklin that said well done is better than well said and i think that there are a lot of people that talk about what they want to do or talk about how they want to be successful but not a lot of people have the discipline to make it happen and i think for me that discipline started when i you know stopped playing video games for fun or you know watch less television i watch very little television these days um, so I think that right now the place we, we are in, the, in this world is that we're rewarded for being content creators on social media, like quick content creation in a lot of volume, right? But the system isn't really rewarding people who are playing the long game. Um, so I would say, you know, that would be my advice to anybody out there who wants to be a creator, who wants to be good at something is to, to really get good at it. And I think that you can you can do that in just about any discipline. Um, so it, I had to put in the work for sure. Do you feel like you're someone, you mentioned this before about kind of when I asked about, did you envision this? And you said maybe a little bit, but maybe not to the, the, the yeah. extent that you are where you are. Are you someone that believes in manifesting your future or visualizing it or 
I, I'm interested in that juxtaposed to what you just said, which is doing the thing, doing it every day, making sure yeah. you're working at your craft, right? And, and really spending that time to, yeah. to get to the reward. Or is it some I'm, combo? Yeah, I would say I'm not really uh, somebody who believes in manifesting it and then, you know, having it come true. I have a, a little bit of a different take on that. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's this book called Good to Great, and it's about companies that basically take that jump from just kind of humming along to all of a sudden making this big jump. Uh, and they, the authors studied what was it that made these companies take that leap. And one of the qualities is that they have sort of a quiet understanding of the potential. He uses as an example, his wife who has been doing the triathlon for years and she's done pretty well. But then one year she says, you know what? I think I could, I could win it. And he says that she, it wasn't a, he, she wasn't trying to manifest it. She thought realistically, if she did certain things that she could win the tri triathlon or the Ironman uh, competition or whatever it is called. Mm -hmm. And then she did the things that she needed to do and then she won it. And I think that there is something there is that every year, a few times a year, I gather with my team and I'd say, what can we be the best in the world at? Literally the best in the world at, right? I can't be the best artist. I can't be the best writer. There's lots of things that I can't be the best at, right? So I wouldn't I wouldn't try to be, um, but we can tour the best in the world, right? I would say, hands down, we're the best touring outfit in the world. You know, we travel all over the world. You know, we have the budget for it. Um, we're very inventive, creative. We toured all throughout the pandemic and came up with really uh, unique ways to keep everybody safe. And so I would say that, you know, I, we had a we have a quiet understanding and a confidence in how to be the best at that one really specific thing. And that's what I would say is a recipe for success when you're realistic about your goal setting and then you're willing to do the work to, to, to make it there. happen. What do you enjoy now, like given all these different inputs to your life and, and how you're operating with this now at such a high level, what do you get the most enjoyment from and the most satisfaction from? Well, I think that with the tour comes this kind of release. Um, so what happens in my, I live the same year, year after year. So I, I do my book throughout the summer, okay. which is really hard. And then, and I miss the summer every summer. And then what happens next is that I, you know, then there's all this work that comes with the book. That's not so fun, you know, that all sorts of logistics and things like that. And that's the phase I'm in right now. And then the tour is a time when we can, it, life becomes really simple. It's just, we get out on the road, we appear before a group of people, uh, make some people happy, hopefully, and then move on to the next spot. And there's a lot of fun and adventure that happens in between. So I would say that's what I enjoy the most. And, you know, of course I get to meet the readers and, and things like that, that are really fulfilling. I also like, I have a bookstore here in Plainville, Massachusetts, and we have um, authors here all the time that are really the best in the world. We have, I interviewed yesterday, uh, Kwame Alexander, I offered him, uh, I interviewed him at uh, NIEB, which is New England Booksellers Association, and we, but I get to interview those types of people here all the time. We have Chelsea Clinton coming in, we've had Rick Riordan, John Grisham, Katie Camillo, uh, David Sedaris, like wow. on and on and on. Yeah. And so that, so whatever cachet I have from being an author, that gives, that unlocks these interviews. 
which is it edifies my life and of course the uh, lives of people in our community. What do you do when you're not working? Do you what like I know you know you have kids, you have a family. How, how much time off do you get, and yeah. how do you spend it? Like, what do you enjoy to doing that's not work related? Yeah, I'm just about always working. Um, and but, but what I do when I do, you know, get away from work, I'll, I like going to the Celtics, and I like to, uh, you know, occasionally go to the Patriots, um, and then every so often I'll watch a movie with my wife. I, you know, I like spending time with my kids. We go skiing in, in the winter. I, I really like going to their basketball games. Both have played in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And so, that you know, my favorite time of the year is when the kids are in AAU and there are just like lots and lots of, you know, there are lots of opportunities to just watch them play, which is really fun. Do they give you any uh, subject matter now that you've had kids go through, like they're older now, but when your kids were going through that time period, were you getting any glimpses into new opportunities and new stories for <laughs> for the characters to go through? Yeah, it's a, it happens a lot less often than you would think. Really? Um, my kids are really different than I was um, yeah. growing up. And they, you know, whereas I might have like created a lemonade stand, they're, they're gonna be playing in basketball games. Like we have different childhoods. We had a really big bike culture, you know, where I grew up where, yeah. where everybody got around with their bicycles, my kids don't really do that. You know, so we're just different kids. So I got I got less material than I was hoping for uh, out of having kids. <laughs> and then you grew up in the DC area, right? In, in Maryland, how did you get to Massachusetts? What is it that brought you there? And, and you, that's, do you spend time only there or you spend time in different places? Yeah, mostly in Massachusetts. I, I came up here in 1995. It was a, I was married before yeah. uh, marriage ended a few years later, and then I got remarried. So I've been married this time for 22 years. Um, so I sort of, I came up here and then I just stuck around. You just stuck around. And then do you have at this point of the 18 in terms of the book series, do you have a favorite or do you have one that holds a special place for you? Yeah, I just wrote this one called Diaper Overload, which sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud. It's spelled with like lots of umlauts and misspelled. It's uh, it's about a band. It's sort of like this is Spinal Tap for kids. Oh. Um, so it's about Greg's older brother's band trying to make it big. And it was uh, really fun to write and it's gonna be really fun to tour for. Yeah, and you mentioned a band. So are you in a band also? Or do you, are other people in the band? And you're like, how are you? Like, what do you do with the band in terms of just your own role? I am not in a band. You're- my brother was in a band. My Both my brothers were in a band. And um, so I never really got to live that life. But I, now I'll get to live it sort of vicariously by doing this tour where we're going to have a band on stage. And, and uh, you know, we're going to, it's going to feel like kids' uh, first rock concert, actually. <laughs> so awesome i love that you can bring all these things to life like that's got to be such a cool thing to create it in your brain and then you actually get to like take it out of the page right and make it a real thing that's just that's so cool yeah a lot of times our ideas are quite um crazy and they in in, for example on this tour which is called the diaper overload tour we just um found a band of like a garage band of, of college kids to, to tour with us. And it's a crazy idea and things could go really wrong. Um, but you know, that's part of the fun is that, yeah. you, you know, 
screwing up and things like that are is part of the fun of it all. And we've had just about everything go wrong that could go wrong on these tours. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, right? And I also noticed that with the movies, like, so you've done some screenwriting, um, and you've also been in the movies. Like, so as far as some of these different roles you're playing, how does it feel to screenwrite something versus write the book, right? Versus, yeah. you know, a t that's a totally different type of writing, right? Yeah. I would say that's really energizing because you, you know, you put it down on the page or you type it on your, on my iPad, you know, and then you send it out. And the next thing you know, there are actors reading the lines in the studio. And, and sometimes the actors are pretty famous and, and, you know, it's people you grew up watching yeah. and, and things like that. And then all of a sudden they're reading your lines and taking notes from you while you're, you know, recording. And so I would say that that's probably the most kinetic part of what I do mm -hmm. and that in the most fulfilling as well. How about being an actor in them? They're terrible. I was the worst in the world. <laughs> I couldn't do worse. <laughs> I, I think maybe you're too hard on yourself. Are you always on set during the filming or is it, do you like drop in, drop out, right? Because obviously those take a long time. You probably can't be there every day. Like what is that like in terms of your involvement? And well, I'll start there. And then I have another follow-up okay. just about. Yeah. So in the, in the feature world, so we did four feature films and I was on set about half the time for each of those. An author is not really an integral uh, part of, of a movie set right. or, you know, I'm just there to kind of observe. I don't have much influence on set. The animated world is totally different. It's, it's like, I've got more, I'm much, much more involved and I'm the writer of these movies so that um so my involvement is very complete on those so it's been uh you know to totally different worlds in the in the feature world the writer is king or the uh the, the director is king sort of and then in the animated world or the written uh the television world the writer has a much uh, different position more prominent position do you have a favorite animator or a favorite who inspired you when you were young and who do you appreciate now? Yeah, I have a statue here of Scrooge McDuck in my in my studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was my favorite. My, my favorite cartoonist was Carl Barks, who created Scrooge McDuck and did a lot of Donald Duck cartoons. He's from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and then um, and then I fell in love with uh, Gary Larson, who did The Far Side, Bill Watterson, who did Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, and I think everybody likes Peanuts. Uh, you know for various reasons. Um, so I would say those are the biggest uh, the biggest influences on me in cartooning. Do you know that, um, so growing up, I'm Catholic and we tried a couple of different churches and one church, one one of the priests, and he, he, was not, he was like a visiting priest, but he would start every homily with the Peanuts stri strip. Like he would kind of read out and then yeah. this whole homily would be based every single time without fail and i thought it was the coolest like obviously yeah. you know as a young person that resonate just because it was interesting yeah. and different but also the fact that you could take a peanuts strip and make it yeah. somehow work in a yeah. religious homily it was really cool and i'm still talking about it and it's like 25 years later it's pretty amazing yeah it was very yeah, cool. cool and it's kind of incredible yeah. the power right that like you think too of the power of cartoons and, and like animation and just now especially like it's just it's such a strong way to tell a story and people are so yeah. engaged in that world it's it's pretty amazing to be able yeah. to be a part well, of that 
Yeah, well, cartooning is all about distillation, right? It's trying to make the biggest impact with the, the least information possible, the, the least number of words, the least uh, uh -huh. you know amount of lines. I think it's a little bit different than like illustrated uh, works. Um, so I, it's uh, it's cool to try to figure out how to, to communicate very efficiently. Are there any downsides to what you do? Like, would you say, is there anything that you know, for people that are considering this path of being a writer or a creator, what are some of the pitfalls or some of the things that are challenging? Yeah, well, there is a lawsuit that just, uh, you know, came out this Simon Schuster lawsuit uh, with it's an antitrust kind of lawsuit. And a lot of facts about publishing came out during this uh, lawsuit. And one of the shocking numbers was that 98% uh, of books sell less than 2000 copies. And so a lot of people who are thinking about getting into this business might look at that and say, oh, I might as well not even try, right. you know, and, yeah. and that's valid, you know, that's, it's, it's a tough business. So I would say that's a pitfall. I got, I got really lucky. I beat those odds and then, you know, was able to, to sell a lot of copies, but that's not, you know, very, it's an anomaly. Um, so I would say it could be very hard to have, you know, and it, it, it just, as easily couldn't have happened for me. Like it might have been that I produced this very same work and then didn't find the right channels mm. and didn't have the right doors open for me. So it didn't, it wasn't really dependent on the quality of my work. I think that was a factor, but I think it was also dependent on the opportunities that presented to themselves to me at that time. Actually, that was, that was perfect segue to the question around relationships and networking and to your point earlier about now you have a cachet and so getting people to come to your bookstore is, you know, you've got credibility and you can use that. When you were just starting out, did you have much of a network? Did you have relationships that helped to even get that first book published? No, I did. Uh, I, I did and I didn't. I had a, um, I worked for uh, a person who had been in publishing for a while. His name is Jess Brawlier. And he, he actually sent me to New York to say, hey, go find somebody to, to publish this. I wouldn't say he connected me directly, but he definitely had the right idea for me to go down to New York Comic Con. And I, I got a lot of advice from him. As far as networks in the, in the way that I think you mean it, um, no, I didn't really have those connections. I think what's really interesting about people in different spheres right now, in music and acting yeah. and writing, that they have to build up a big, or they feel that they have to build, build up a, build up a big uh, social media following, right? I know like legitimate actors right now who say all it's about is getting your TikTok subscribers up because then a studio will look at you and say, well, you've got 3 million fans. So that's a, that helps us to sell tickets, you know? And that's like, I'm glad I'm not living in that world because then you're spending maybe more time selling yourself than you are creating your work. For sure. I mean, it's so different now. I mean, I know, you know, I think we're about the same age. So I think that, you know, what it took for you to become successful and to your point, I mean, you're a bit of a unicorn story in terms of there might be a lot of talented illustrators out there that, you know, are funny. <laughs> but, you know, for that you had this opportunity, uh, but you're right. I think this sort of saturation of social media and, and like for me, I just what's real and what's not what's vapor like in terms of talent in terms like I could relate it to singing how singing now anybody can sing because you can 
flip on a mic and it can be distorted and I can have a great voice. And so now it's about all these other things than just the pure art of singing. So it's, it's crazy in terms of like creatively what counts, you know, and like what, and and I don't know what, in terms of the followers piece for sure, but like what sells, what doesn't sell. And then where do you bring that authenticity? It definitely seems like a confusing landscape for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a different landscape than it was uh, 10 years ago for sure. And, And so I feel lucky that I, I got in when it was a little bit more pure and less, less about social media. Yeah. What do you think about for the future? So you've accomplished so much already. You have so much in the works. Like, do you, are you someone that plans? Like, how far ahead are you planning? What's something that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? We are busy scheduling relatable interviews for 2023, and we love our relatable community. If you or someone you know would be a good guest for Relatable, let us know. You can send an email to info at tfasoftskills.com. Include the potential guest name and contact information. Please send all suggestions to info at tfasoftskills.com. I think my my next big uh, milestone is to get to book 20 because I'm close enough to that, that that shouldn't be too much of a problem. As far as what I want to do, um, I I don't have any other really big dreams. Like I've gotten to do film and a musical and, and books. And, you know, and I I think maybe if I had one more big idea, that would be nice, but maybe I don't even need that. I like building out this world and doing it in sort of a quality way. I'd love to see us get the Disney movies up to, you know, five, seven, ten of those movies because it'd be really fun to kind of keep building out the Wimpy Kid universe. Um, But I don't have any big dreams or big unfulfilled dreams. Do you feel like there's an undercurrent or a message that you try to convey throughout, like a thread that's pulled all the way through them? Like I know obviously there's humor and it's taking that light, that period of time and to your point, like kind of exposing it in a really creative and fun way. Is there something that drives you in terms of like mission or theme that you're hoping people feel as they as they go through them? Is it book specific or is it a continue like continuity? Yeah, I think in the in the feature in the films, in the animated films, it's all these are just stories of Greg's coming of age story. You know, one might be about him and his best friend, one might be about him and his brother, and another might be him and his father. And those are all like those relationships are all worth exploring in a coming of age sort of way. Yeah. And the books aren't aren't like that. The books are all about the humor. Like the the priority is on the humor. And the plot and the, the the feeling behind it and the message are are sort of irrelevant. Like if they're not funny, they're not going to work. A, mm. a film is really different because you have to have a message and a point of view and and uh, character development and things like that. So I would say that there in the two different mediums, my priorities are really different. And how much creative control do you have to relinquish? And how is that for you? In the on the book page, none. Okay. You know, I control everything, including how the paper feels in your hands. Okay. Uh, 
in the animated world, it would I would say uh, it's a really good, healthy, balanced sort sort of situation. Um, so where I wouldn't say it's relinquishing control, I'd say it's finding solutions is probably a different mm. way to put it. Yep. And, yeah. and then the, fe- the feature world is more inherently out of your control. Um, so I would say I had influence, um, but not control. It's a different thing. And is that hard or because it is what it is and, and you it's another medium for people to see the world and, to, you know, have yeah. per- exposure to it. So is that the trade off? You, you know, how yeah. is it to, to let go of that a little bit? It's a mix of all of those things, I would say, and, and different on different days. So, yeah. um, but you know, what I really got out of the experience was these relationships with the people. You know, I just spent time with the the actors in in Disneyland. Uh, you know, two weekends ago, and you know, so I uh, I developed really great relationships from that, and a lot of uh, great experience that's helped me to become a writer now. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Is there anyone that stands out in terms of who you've worked with or that's made an impact on you right creatively through you know in the last 10 years that's like really made an impact on you either personally right and and from a fulfillment perspective or just you know relationship wise that kind of stands out i would say that the the most impact other creators have had on me is by telling their stories that that don't look like my stories. So we have, like I said, we have this bookstore here. And so I'll sit in the audience for, you know, a lot of authors that come through. A lot of them are people that don't look like me. It didn't grow up like me. And those people, like, I'm so glad we have the bookstore because I get this different point of view um, that enriches and edifies my life. Um, so I would say the ambient uh, cumulative effect is that I feel like more knowledgeable about the world in, in, in a way that I'm really grateful for. And I mean, what an amazing thing you're doing, I think, in a way, because of everything you've accomplished, the bookstore, keeping that alive, <laughs> keeping books alive. You know, there's such a it's such a it's a hard time right now, right, for for writers and for bookstores and for this medium so the fact that you have this opportunity to feed it and support it is really is really cool i love yeah, that yeah it feels great to be in, in a position to have a bookstore here especially in a little town like plainville yeah okay so just a couple more questions one i, I uh, you may or may not know um, the uh, my friend that introduced us so my background is all in human resources i spent a lot of time in the corporate world, like over 25 years, mostly professional services firms working in human resources. And I decided to start my own business focused solely on the development of soft skills because I feel strongly and passionately that they're dying and Mm -hmm. that we need more help and that people, young people um, in particular, and people at certain milestones in their career can benefit from strengthening and developing these skills. And so one thing I like to ask my guests is about soft skills in your profession, in your life, in the the way Mm. that you operate, and ones that are important to you. And if you were to give some counsel to other people, you have teams that work for you, right? You have an organization of your own. So what are the soft skills for you that are very important that if someone's listening and they're thinking about strengthening and developing them, that can help them to be successful? Do you have one or two that stand out? Yeah, I'd say emotional intelligence is something that is something that 
I wouldn't say I'm lacking in it exactly, but I have seen people in on my own team who are much better at it, uh, about praising people at the right time, about really working the relationship. I have some people on my staff that I can see when they're when they're talking closely to somebody else. Their their read their eyes are scanning up and down the other person's face because they're constantly checking in about how that person's feeling at that moment. And I have people on my who I work with in general, like I have an agent who's really good with emotional intelligence and people skills. Uh, so I would say that that's very valuable. And then give me another example of a soft skill to sort of set me spinning off, and I'll give you another one. Yeah. So I think there's buckets, right? Communication is a big one active listening, influence, collaboration. It's Mm -hmm. the skills that I think augment and support your technical expertise and craft. So whether you're a writer or you're a mathematician or you're a musician, it's these interpersonal like attributes and characteristics that help to augment those. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that it's really interesting the, the way that, you know, kids who have lived through this pandemic definitely would have had to develop remote collaboration skills in, in a way that obviously our generation didn't have to you know, generate. But I think that you know, those collaborative skills of figuring out how to almost get through the screen to, to the other person, I think is like really important. So I would say that's another good uh, soft skill to have is to figure out how to collaborate without being there physically in person. Yeah, for sure. And make that connection, right? We just I just had a workshop with a bunch of eighth graders this morning and we're talking about how to just use open-ended questions, right, to build conversation yeah. and connection with other people. All right, and before we wrap, the last thing is just, I mean, given your story and what you've shared so far, I, I, I'm curious what your answer to be will this in terms of your own path to where you are now and you think about young Jeff and the different things you've had to experience to get to this point. Is there any counselor advice you would give that could have helped this path be a little bit easier? You know, is there anything that you would share with him, pull young Jeff aside and say, hey, you know, you could probably spare him some heartache or a little bit of stress or gray hair maybe (laughs) along the way? Yeah, I'd say to get really good at something. Um, I think that you know, a lot of people dabble in different things. Of course, I tried like playing the piano and drawing and other other kinds of things, but I never really got serious about anything. And I feel like if I if I started as a as a teenager, a young uh, person, that I could have gotten really good at something um, that would have really because then if you if you subscribe to the ten thousand hour rule, if you start when you're about age thirteen trying to get really good at something then by the time you're 23, 24 years old, you could be literally an expert at that. So I'd say picking a lane, committing to that thing and seeing how good you can get at it. I love that. And do you feel like in a way, like for Wimpy Kid, like it's so specific what you do. I mean, there's not, it's just very, there's such a specific and niche and specificity to it that I feel like also helps because then you build this one thing and that you build it to your point there's so much to it and then it just like fans out but you started very small with just this very in terms of the time of life right the type of story you're telling it seemed very intentional and specific yeah it is it is really specific and so i asked the question before what what can we be the best in the world at and i'd say i'm the best in the world at creating wimpy kid books which is very specific (laughs) they're not the best book 
world, but I know how to do this, you yeah. know? So I did get, I did get good at one really specific thing, yeah. and, you know, and I, sure. I think that, that um, there's value to that. And then I was looking online last thing, there's some debate over whether he ages. Yes. So does Greg age or is he still, the, is he always the same age? I really, I, w I was looking at it and I was like, there's a lot of like back yeah. and forth. They're like, no, he's 12 and he always stays 12. And then there's yeah. like, no, he's actually aged two years and he's 14. So now that I have you here, I feel like right. I... I think Greg is like most good cartoon characters. He doesn't change and he doesn't age. And, but even if he has birthdays, he still doesn't age. He doesn't so. age. What a great, it's a big, yeah, great right. way to be, right? Wouldn't it be good? Yeah. Uh, well, I am just so grateful to your time. I really appreciate it. I'm very thankful to Brooke for the introduction also. But just really, this has been such a pleasure. And my team, we were so excited to meet you. And like I said in the beginning, like I, just personally, they want to read because of you. And that's just an incredible thing. It's like an incredible legacy. And I'm so, I really am so appreciative. And thank you okay. for being on. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Relatable. It was such a pleasure to be able to speak with you and to hear about how your career took off and the success and hear all about the success of Diary, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I really appreciate what you shared about the reality of writer's block that you face and how you've adopted a technique called systematic inventive thinking, which helps a lot. Uh, we also, I also really enjoyed your advice on the importance of empathy and working relationships, checking in with your coworkers, and how collaboration skills both online and in person can have a positive impact on the workplace. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A huge thank you to our Relatable community for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe either on YouTube or your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting www.tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.